What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. That's That was the, uh, the idea of the show when we founded it almost 10 years ago, and that's what we have kept to. We're answering questions for non-Catholics who want to know a little more about the Catholic faith. Do we really believe this? Do we not believe that? Let's get those things answered today. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us today in Siberia, well, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, and then uh, Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Would love to answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Mr. Globetrotter himself, Dr. David Anders. Tom Price, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing pretty decent. Had, so, a, had a wonderful trip out to Walla Walla and, yes. and Pasco and uh, with all the good Catholic folks out there. So just got back in town and happy to be here. You had a good time. And then you went someplace else too, right? Um, was there another location you um, visited over the... I, I, I did. I had to. I, I was on family business in oh, Washington, okay. D.C. Washington. Last week, yeah. So very, I went from Washington to Washington. How about that? That was quite a trip. Okay. Yeah. Here's an email, and I think you'll have a lot to say about this. This is from Caleb. Caleb says, I am a Calvinist who is yearning be- to become Catholic. I have one hang-up, though. I am desperately trying to escape the doctrine of double predestination, which is why I was relieved to hear that Catholicism rejects this view. However, the Catholic doctrine of predestination, which essentially boils down to the elect being saved by God's gift of the grace of perseverance— seems to me to be no different than the view of Calvin. The Catholic view seems to state that God predestines the elect, but damns the rest by not giving them the grace of perseverance. For me, this means that Catholicism and Calvinism believe in the same doctrine, but use different words. What say you? Not true. Uh-huh. Not true. Not true. Okay. So you're you're confusing a couple points. One is you're confusing what is dogmatically taught by the Catholic Church on the one hand mm-hmm. from what some theologians hold on the other. Uh-huh. Okay. And this is a distinction that is lost on Protestants because Protestantism doesn't really have a coherent conception of the difference between dogma and theological opinion. Right. Uh, so what I mean by that is the habit within Protestantism is that you really invest your pastor's proclamation of the Word of God with an awful lot of authority. Mm-hmm. And since you believe, Protestants believe, at the end of the day, the Bible is the highest authority, the Bible is the rule of faith, you're kind of bound in conscience to hold whatever the last most persuasive person you heard taught. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Yes, there are doctrinal statements, the Westminster Confession or the Augsburg Confession or something like that. 
But if, if you hear a sermon, you hear a homily, you hear an explanation of some biblical text, and you think, yeah, that makes sense, that must be what it means, well, if, if you're already pre-committed to the idea that the Bible is the, is the rule of faith, the highest authority, then as soon as you think that's what the text means, well, you're kind of obligated to make an act of faith in that interpretation. Mm, so yeah. dogma just is the most persuasive theologian that you know. Okay. Uh, okay. That is not at all how Catholicism works, and it's not the way the Catholic conscience responds to teaching. So here, here's what I mean by that. You take somebody like Thomas Aquinas. You read St. Thomas Aquinas, and you think, man, the logic of his position is just unassailable. I mean, he, he kind of took me by the nose with this argument, this sort of deductive logic about predestination or providence or whatever it might be. Uh-huh. And he sort of led down this path, and I, I see no way out of that 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 logical conclusion. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's not what the dogma of the Church teaches, uh-huh. right? And I'm not saying the dogma contradicts St. Thomas. What I'm saying is the conclusions of theologians, no matter how persuasive they may be, may be in argumentation, are not elevated to the status of a dogma. And so when it comes to predestination, here are some of the things that the Catholic Church has said about predestination. These are the dogmas, right? Um, that, uh, number one, that we shouldn't talk about it too much at the risk of scandalizing the, the, the little ones in Jesus, because it is a great mystery. That's something that the Council of Trent said about predestination. Um, that, uh, that God predestines no one to hell. That's something else the Catholic Church has said pre- about predestination. Um, that God gives the grace of perseverance, right, not based on our foreseen merits. Mm-hmm. That he offers sufficient grace to everyone to be saved, and that grace is resistible, you can say no to grace, um, and that we can merit an increase in grace, and that we can ask for the grace of perseverance, and that prayer is not, is not otios, it's not pointless to ask for God to give us the grace of, of uh, perseverance. Okay. Now, you, you can hold all of those things together, and obviously they hold together with some tension— uh, without in any way drawing the Calvinist conclusion of double predestination. In, in fact, some of those doctrines are flat contrary to Calvinism. Right? So Calvin, for example, teaches explicitly that grace is irresistible. The Catholic Church teaches that grace is resistible. Calvin teaches that God gives uh, the, the grace for salvation only to a few. The Catholic Church teaches explicitly that he offers sufficient grace to everyone, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, Calvin teaches that all of the regenerate necessarily persevere. The Catholic Church teaches that all of the regenerate do not necessarily persevere, and that our collaboration, our cooperation with grace is necessary in order to persevere, even though perseverance itself is a gift. And so it's, it definitely runs flat contrary to the Calvinist teaching. Now, sure. You get into the mind of theologians who are trying to make all of those statements fit together in a coherent way. And St. Thomas will articulate a theory of predestination that is very similar to Calvin, but with some important differences, which has led, you know, some theologians to, they say, read St. Thomas and go, "Eh, not that different from Calvin. But then you turn around and read Molina, and you get an entirely different account of predestination, and both of them are allowable for Catholics. That's where the dogma versus opinion thing comes in. Very good. Caleb, thanks so much for your email. Hey, we're live on this Fat Tuesday afternoon. Give us a call if you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. 
It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon, a Fat Tuesday, uh, just before we begin Ash Wednesday and the holy season of Lent. Very excited to be bringing you lots of special programming over the next few weeks. Uh, keep it right here on EWTN Radio. Tell your friends, um, you know, switch to Catholic Radio for Lent. That is not a penance, I can tell you that. Hey, phone lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN's Religious Catalog, The New Relativism, Unmasking the Philosophies of Today's Woke Moralists by Carlo Broussard. In this book, Carlo examines today's woke world where most people are now moralists, not relativists. But contrary to relativism being dead, he shows that the dictatorship of relativism is just hiding behind the mask of woke moralism. Drawing on examples both timeless and fresh as today's news, Carlo unpacks the various styles and flavors of this new relativism, shining a light on their modern woke disguises and showing just how to dismantle them piece by piece. And even more important, he shows you how to replace them with better attitudes that reflect a moral and intellectual universe of objective truth. This book is a winner, The New Relativism, Unmasking the Philosophy of Today's Today's Woke Moralists by Carlo Broussard. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you uh, go to the search engine there and just type in Carlo with a K and Woke, I'm uh, betting that you'll pull it up right away. Again, The New Relativism. Do look for that brand new book. All right, phones are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. This is a great time to call. 833-288-3986. Here's a question now from uh, Will in Tallahassee right here in Alabama. Dr. Anders, why does the Catholic Church have dogmas of the faith pertaining to Mary. I can understand looking to her as a good example of faith and obedience. I can even see the line of reasoning for asking her intercession, but how can it be binding on the Christian conscience to believe that she was sinless, ever virgin, and assumed bodily into heaven? Thank you, Will in Tallahassee. Yeah, thanks, Will. I appreciate the question. Well, the short answer to the question is that it can bind the conscience if God has revealed this doctrine to be true and necessary. And okay. that, is, that is precisely what is at issue when the Church defines something to be a dogma. It's saying this is something that has come to us by way of divine revelation for the sake of our salvation, that God revealed this in order to help people get to heaven, and so believing it is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian person, a Catholic person. Um, now, if you want more detail about, like, what is the utility of holding these things, like why would the Holy Spirit reveal this to the human race, and why would the Church say, you know, even though God has revealed this, here's here's why you really ought to go out of your way to believe it. And it's because of Mary's iconic status uh, within within the Catholic scheme of redemption, that Mary is not just a kind of uh, passive receptacle through which uh, the, the God-man passed on his way to human earth, uh, the way to human life, to, to, to planet Earth. Uh-huh. Uh, but Mary is integral to the plan of redemption. And in fact, in the, in the Declaration of the Dogma of the Immaculate Conception, um, the, uh, the Pope makes the deliberate assertion that in the same decree of divine predestination, whereby God decreed the incarnation of the Son of God, he decreed uh, the Immaculate Dece- Conception of this particular virgin from, from the Holy Land. 
that, you know, he didn't just flip a coin and pick some woman. He, he specifically intended this particular humanity from this particular femininity. Yes. Right? And, uh, and she is, again, not, she's, not just, she's not just the mother of the Christ, right? She is the mother of God who's also the mother of the church. And as such, she, she, she is the mother of all those reborn in Jesus and is a, a, a mother to us, not in the natural way of, of human generation, parturition, but of spiritual rebirth and regeneration. And so the various dogmas about her person, her, whether it's her, her, her immaculate conception, her sinless life, her, her perpetual virginity, underscore the particular kind of consecration to holiness that is the vocation of every Christian, mm-hmm. but exemplified in her case. I mean, even as Christ is the second Adam, she's the second Eve. All right. And and reflecting on these doctrines, meditating upon them, interiorizing them, is is uh, edifying and sanctifying. Okay. Hey, Will, thanks so much uh, for your email here. Uh, you know, my my eyes automa- automatically made that word look like Tallahassee, as in Florida, but I believe it's Tallahassee. Alabama. Have you ever heard of Tallahassee? Heard, yes. Been there, no. Okay, very good. Called to communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from Jared. Can you tell me a little more about Martin Luther? Why was he wrong about salvation by faith alone, and what influenced him? Okay, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So why was Luther wrong, and what were his influences? Um, great. So uh, he's wrong. The simplest way to put this is because he, he directly contradicts the teaching of St. Paul. Right, okay. and the teaching right. of Holy Scripture, yeah, and and not to mention the teaching of Saint James. Luther alleged he 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 put himself forth as having finally interpreted Saint Paul correctly, giving out the right understanding of Paul's letters to the Romans and the Galatians. Uh, but what he gives out is not the Pauline teaching. And mm. you know, when I was investigating these issues for myself many years ago, uh, I was still a Protestant at the time. I determined to read only Protestant commentary. I said, I'm going to put Catholics out of my mind for a minute. I'm just going to read the best in modern Protestant scholarship on St. Paul. And I was very surprised to learn that the best in modern Protestant scholarship concludes that Luther got Paul wrong. Wow. And so I was reading guys like E.P. Sanders and Christer Stendhal and James Dunn and and N.T. Wright and uh, Protestants, all of them, and, and they made an extremely persuasive case that Luther profoundly misunderstood the, the writings and the teachings of St. Paul. You know, Paul said that a man is justified by faith and not by works of the law. Luther interpreted that to mean that moral behavior as such has nothing to do with our status before God. And that's not what Paul means. In fact, Paul says the exact opposite. In Romans chapter 2, verse 13, he says, It's not hearing the law, it's obeying the law by which you'll be declared righteous. And that comes about through the regeneration of your heart that is the gift of uh, faith, the gift of grace. So Romans two twenty-five to 29, Paul says, when you believe Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who circumcises your heart, changes your character, and enables you to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law that you couldn't do on your own steam. And that mm. is the Catholic position. The Catholic position is the grace of God saves us, yes, but saves us by making us holy, by changing uh, our character. Okay. Whereas the Lutheran position was that the character is essentially unaffected, um, at least with respect to our justification, 
and that God accepts you for Christ's sake alone, irrespective, regardless of the status of your moral life. So in his commentary on Galatians, Luther could say, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. That's a direct quote from Luther. God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. Whereas the Catholic position is, God absolutely smiles on people for their charity and virtues. So it's really it's really the opposite of the Pauline sure. teaching. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why it's wrong. And it's, it's spiritually dangerous, right? Because Lutherans can be holy people. Presbyterians can be holy people. Um, but uh, but they misunderstand the relationship of that holiness to the question of their relationship with God and their salvation. Uh, when it comes to Luther's influences, he had many. Uh, the best book on this topic is by Heiko Obermann, the biography of Luther called Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. But uh, but some of the influences on Luther that were powerful were, first of all, uh, the influence of late medieval nominalism, uh-huh. in particular the philosophy of William of Ockham, um, Occam, uh, nominalism is is a philosophical position that holds that universals don't exist. And so universal would be a general category uh, of something like, um, you know, uh, like Plato had the idea that the way we recognize a dog as a dog is that there's a kind of universal idea that it is to be a dog. You know, a four-legged, you know, fuzzy, barky, waggy thing. And if you fit that description, then you're a dog. Uh-huh. And, uh, and... Uh, but more importantly, that you could also abstract from categories like goodness and truth and beauty and come up with an abstract definition of, you know, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be true? And then you, you recognize instances because they meet that general description. And so obviously with those sorts of like dog, we don't care too much about. We do care a lot about whether something says intrinsically good or intrinsically mm-hmm. true. Intrinsically yeah. The nominalist position is to hold that there is no such entity. There's no such thing as abstract goodness. There's no such thing as, you know, the abstract ideal of a dog. Um, they're just they're just they're just singulars, you know. They're just a lot of animals running around. There are a lot of concrete individuals running around, and that mentally we we might clump them into classes because of similarities that we perceive, but those similarities themselves have no ontological status. And so, terms like goodness, truth, beauty, dog, cat are just names. Hence, hence the term nominalism to describe the philosophical mm, school. Okay. They're just something that we impose on the data by a kind of uh, a, a kind of fiat, a kind of voluntaristic decision. Now, if you translate that into the realm of soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, if that mindset is informing the way you're thinking about spiritual realities, then it's not a far jump to make the conclusion there's nothing good but that which God calls good, right? There's no one righteous but what God calls righteous. And since Luther's position is that we are not intrinsically righteous, we're just called righteous by God, you see the connection? So the, yeah. the disposition to nominalism sets one up for the kind of doctrine of imputation that Luther would ultimately arrive at. And Luther himself said of William Ockham, Ockham is my master. Okay. The, another influence on Luther would be Rhineland mysticism, something called the German theology, which was rampant in the time, also Meister Eckhart. It was a tendency in German mysticism to to sort of radically devalue um, the human person and their contribution to the mystical enterprise, and to adopt a pose of a stance of like uh, of um, of utter passivity and 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 uh, and self abnegation and humiliation. That this emphasis on you know my worthlessness and powerlessness and everything kind of flowing from God, and and that obviously sets one up for a. Th- the soteriology, a doctrine of salvation, of monergism, the idea that God does it all and I don't add mm. anything. Um, another uh, influence on, on Luther within the nominalist school was the uh, 15th century 
Catholic theologian Gabriel Beale. And uh, Luther was uh, uh, very familiar with Beale's work. And something, the formula doesn't come from Beale. We'll find it in Occam and we find it in Scotus and others. But there was a slogan in the late Middle Ages about our cooperation with God. Facere quod in est was the Latin phrase, to do what is within one. And the way that was interpreted pastorally by Gabriel Beale was that if you kind of give it your dead level best, God will make up the difference. So you do your part up to the limit of your ability, and then God will make up the difference. Facere quod in seest, do what's in you. Uh-huh. And psychologically, Luther interpreted that as, uh, as, uh, as just agonizing, because how could he ever know that he had done what was within him? And then the final influence that I'll mention was that Luther had a neurotic personality. Today, we probably diagnose him as being bipolar and, and to be sure, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And, you know, the worst thing you could ever tell a, 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 an obsessive-compulsive person would be, like, wash your hands until they're totally clean. Oh. Well, like, what's totally clean yeah, mean to yeah. somebody with OCD? You know, mm-hmm. tell Luther, wash your soul until you've done everything you can within you. He nearly drove himself crazy with fasts and penances and abnegations and so forth built out of that mentality. And, and, and he himself credits that psychological condition as the context that led ultimately to his conclusions about justification, that he had, he had sort of worn himself out in fasts and penances, and he, he needed to make a radical break with that. Um, now, you know, there have been Catholic theologians for decades that held that if Luther had only had a different formation as a young religious, we would never have the Lutheran revelation. Joseph Lortz, his book Reformation in Germany, said if only Luther had read Thomas instead of Gabriel Beale, ah. we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had the Reformation the way it unfolded. Jared, thank you uh, so much for your uh, email. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Here is Mary in Southern California, listening on the Great JP Two Radio. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I was wondering, I heard uh, Bishop Barron say that St. Thomas has a, a teaching on the providence of God, that the providence reaches to the particulars of every individual's life. So my question is, do you have insights on what is meant by the particulars, and does that include, like, the specific crosses or suffering that every human being goes through? in yeah, that doctrine. Absolutely. Yes, I can absolutely speak to that. I really appreciate it. So what Bishop Barron is underscoring and what Thomas is underscoring is that the the Catholic doctrine of providence is different from the Stoic doctrine of providence. The Christians didn't invent the doctrine of providence. There's a philosophical doctrine of providence, and uh, within Stoicism, for example, it would be basically that the world is an ordered place. It's an ordered rational place, uh, and therefore good in virtue of being ordered and rational, um, and so, you know, I can re- I can rely on the fact that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. You know, I don't have to be like the Aztecs who had to sacrifice a human being and rip his heart out every day just to make sure the sun comes up tomorrow. You know, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Gravity will still work. Um, you know, hard work and perseverance will continue to pay off. I mean, those kinds of things would be understood in a philosophical sense to be providences and evidences of the goodness of the world and the goodness of the Creator. Um, but the Christian claim made by Jesus, was that not a sparrow falls apart from the express will of your Father in heaven. And, you know, God loves you more than sparrows, so don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, these sorts of things, because if God clothes the lilies of the field and the grass of the field, how much more will he take care of you, right? So that's the specific Christian claim that God's providence isn't just a kind of general providence about the course of reality, but it extends to the, to the singular events of your life. 
And um, when your question was about the role that suffering plays, absolutely. Again, uh, the Stoic has a position on suffering, and his position is that suffering is the lot of man, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so if you want to be happy, Epictetus would say, um, you know, don't desire things to be other than the way they are. Desire that they be the way they are, and you'll get on well. <laughs> you know, don't add insult to injury and yeah. make your suffering worse by agonizing it. But, but the Christian claim is that those things could also actually be evidences of the loving hand of God who intends them for your redemption and sanctification. Mary, thanks so much for your call today. In a moment, we'll talk with Todd from North Dakota. Hey, lines are open for you. It's a great time to call 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called Communion on this uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN, Fat Tuesday, if you will, Mardi Gras and all that. Our phone number here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we get back to the phones, a quick congratulations and a howdy going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. That would be Athens Catholic Radio, 105.7 FM in Athens, Georgia, celebrating seven years with us this week. How about that? Congratulations to George Sigalis and the great folks at WXPB from all your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to uh, Todd, a first-time caller in North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Todd. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I'm a uh, cradle Catholic, and and my question is that I recently attended uh, a funeral mass or funeral at a Lutheran church, and the pastor offered communion to everybody, no matter their denomination or whether they're in good standing with the church, and they also offered it and gave it to what appeared to be a three- or four-year-old child. So I'm just curious as to, um, is that something that the pastor chose to do on his own, or is that part of the Lutheran faith? That is highly unusual in Lutheranism and not at all the, the rule. Um, the, the typical practice in Lutheranism in the United States is to give First Communion after Confirmation, and Confirmation usually happens around seventh grade. Mm. Um, the ELCA, which is the largest Lutheran body and is considered to be a mainline Lutheran denomination, meaning they may not be as strict about adhering to a literal interpretation of the Lutheran standards in the Book of Concord, um, uh, is, uh, you know, they, they are... They've moved the date of First Communion up, I think, to like fifth or sixth grade, uh, but nobody routinely gives it to four-year-olds, so that's that's highly unusual. Um, now, you know, within the Catholic Church, uh, giving communion to infants has always been the practice in the East, and so the rite of Christian initiation, if you're an Eastern Rite Catholic, is that baptism, chrismation, and First Communion, you all get in one go. And if you've ever been to a to a say uh, an Eastern Rite baptism, it's kind of a it's a kind of a trip to see this little, you know, infant get get trine immersion, get you know dipped three times the baptismal font, while he's just you know gasping for breath. They slap a bunch of oil on him, and then he's trying to figure out that. And then the next thing you know, <laughs> the communion is put in his mouth. Oh, wow, you know? it's quite the show, I tell you what. Um, and so that's always been the case in the Catholic Church in the East. In the East, okay. Um, in the West. Uh, we recognize that that communion, confirmation, and and Eucharist are all sacraments of initiation. They're all you're initiated into the Christian form of life through these things. Mm-hmm. But the but the priority placed on understanding the Eucharist 
led to an eventual separation in time between baptism on the one hand and First Communion on the other, you know, to be preceded by instruction. In the East, they give the instruction afterwards. In the West, they give the instruction before. Sure. Is that helpful for you, Todd? That is it. Thank you very All much. Right. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate your call from uh, North Dakota. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, still a couple of lines open at 833, one line open, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Earlier in the hour, we were talking about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Stephanie has this email. Why does the Church place so much importance on the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. It's a good one. So in the late Middle Ages, the people who placed heavy emphasis on St. Thomas Aquinas tended to be Dominicans. Ah. And outside of the Dominican order, Thomas was not necessarily the go-to guy. Um, but but, or, but at, the, at the Council of Trent, he had sort of reasserted himself as a major theological figure, and, and they actually laid the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas along with the Bible on the altar at the beginning wow. of the council, wow. getting his, his significant status. Um, but, um, uh, and, he, and he was, you know, he was a very important character. In the 19th century, as a response to certain trends in modern theology, uh, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical uh, on Catholic philosophy in which he elevated St. Thomas to public consciousness again and said that he ought to be a model that Catholic philosophers and theologians use uh, in constructing their own theological systems because he struck such a, a brilliant balance between the prerogatives of faith and reason and that he was set forth as a kind of model of how to integrate the faith in the rational order. Now, after Leo XIII, you had... Um, a theological movement in the church called Neo-Thomism, Neo-Thomism, modern Thomism, uh-huh. where Thomas's conclusions were kind of reduced to a system, and in some cases down to 24 theses. So you can read about the 24 Thomistic theses, the philosophical theses, and, uh, and sort of digests or manuals of these conclusions were produced for the training of seminarians, and... Uh, Neo-Thomism got a bad rap historically because it, it seemed to, you know, take a massive body of work and philosophical reflection and reduce it down to a kind of question-and-answer way of learning philosophy. And so many of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century, um, men like Joseph Ratzinger, who would go on to become Pope Benedict, and um, Henri de Lubac, and Karl Rahner, and, and M.D. Chenu, and, and others that would be very influential around the time of the Council— um, uh, uh, you know, von Balthasar, they had a kind of horror at the at, at what Thomism had become, what they considered to be a kind of a kind of a bastardization of of Thomism uh, into this thing called Neo-Thomism, and they proposed a different model of Catholic theology that has been called, uh, it's been titled La Nouvelle Théologie or the New Theology. Oh. It's always used the French term for that because there's a bunch of French people that did it. Yeah. And the and the cry there was the return to the sources, the ressourcement that we hear about in in uh, discussions of the council, and it was to try to go back to patristic models of exegesis and spirituality, and a big fight broke out in the 20th century between the traditional neo-Thomist clan, best represented by Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, and then uh, the the Nouvelle Théologie people that would be represented by pr- pr- particularly Henri de Lubac. And, uh, and it was a big, nasty, bloody fight. 
and and it seemed that the Nouvelle Théologie was had to take a step back after the publication of Humani Generis, Pius XII's encyclical on human origins, which mm -hmm. seemed to take a swipe at de Lubac. Um, but then the Nouvelle Théologie came roaring back with the council, which definitely reflects its perspective. And after the council, um, uh, the popes like John Paul II and Ratzinger and others uh, have really rehabilitated that. And they, they, you know, de Lubac was made a cardinal and the French bishops are now pushing for his canonization. Um, and so that was kind of the mood immediately mm -hmm. after the council. And then there's a kind of a third wave. Actually, there's waves upon waves. Wow. Where Thomas has come back into view. Again, he sort of fell out of favor during the council. And now people are realizing, I think largely as a result of historical critical study, that there is a Thomas other than the way Thomas had been reduced uh, in the neo-Thomist synthesis, and that Thomas the philosopher is a really very profound thinker who, as Leo correctly noted, has a lot to teach us. And so you have a kind of new wave of Thomism that's that's sort of hit the Catholic intellectual world, and and it's uh, popular with a lot of groups, but you know, not least with traditionalists of one stripe or another. So there's a big, long history there yeah. about not only St. Thomas, but the reception of Thomas, the way Thomas has been interpreted, the way Thomas has been argued over, and the place of Thomas in magisterial pronouncements in particular. Stephanie, thanks so much for your email. Here's a question now from Tom in Irondale, Alabama. That'd be me. My question to you, David, is uh, have you ever thought about what the Catholic Church would be like in 2023 if uh, Thomas Aquinas had not come along? Um, you ever thought about th that? that? That's that's a very good question. What would the church have been like if Thomas hadn't come along? So, you know, that, the thing about genius is you can't anticipate it. No, you really can't. And I, I know I know what the church was looking like when Thomas came along. I know what the philosophical questions of the day were. Um, and I know what other streams of Catholic theology looked like in the absence of Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, I can I can extrapolate. You know, what if the what if the the Franciscan vision had won the day? You know, what if this other vision had won the day? Yeah. Um, those are just hypotheticals. And sure. you know, you the, yeah, like you 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 can't you can't uh, uh, if you didn't have the internet, you couldn't imagine the technology needed to build the internet. You know, you, it, invention is a bizarre thing. You can think about an outcome, but you can't, you can't, you literally can't imagine an invention before inventing it. Because once you've imagined it, there it's invented. Yep, there it is. Appreciate that uh, from <clears throat> Tom in Irondale, Alabama. Anyway, here we are on a Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Ashley now in Sioux City, Iowa, listening on the great Siouxland Catholic Radio. Hello, Ashley. What's on your mind today? Hi, yes. I was just asking for kind of a clarification for my son, who's 10. We were at a, a kind of a small group, and I, I know what the deacon was trying to say, um, you know, just to not fall into, like, spiritual pride. Um, but but how he said it, I felt, could have been worded better, because what I felt I heard or fear my 10-year-old heard was basically he had said that, you know, Catholics are no, just because we have the fullness of the truth doesn't make Catholics any better than Protestants. And they get to heaven on less, on only two sacraments. So it felt like it. You know, it felt like someday he might say, "Well, well, you know, I could do this or I could do that. It doesn't really matter. I'll get there regardless." It, it just had a feel, um, and 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 to to I think Aiden was wanting to to get his cousin who's been baptized in the Catholic Church, but um, never got to make her first confession. And 
our first communion. And so I can help it you. just okay. I can help you. Absolutely. I understand the problem. So <clears throat> here's the situation. A particular Catholic may be in worse spiritual shape than a particular Protestant, mm-hmm. to be sure, to be sure. But Catholicism as such is objectively better. It's objectively better. And and the difference is not negligible, and it can have a tremendous influence, impact, positive impact, on an individual's spirituality. Let me give you a couple concrete examples from my own life, because, see, I've been on both sides of this divide. I was an evangelical Protestant who became a Catholic. When I was a young child in the evangelical community, um, I was led to believe that the entire scientific establishment, particularly geologists, biologists, and psychologists, were engaged in a kind of conscious conspiracy to undermine the authority of the Bible. So I was, I was bred into me a kind, of, a kind of suspicion of the scientific enterprise because modern scientific methods had come to conclusions that contradicted my fundamentalist understanding of the Bible. So, for example, I assumed that the world was 10,000 years old, um, you know, that God had created everything 10,000 years ago and, and that there was no evolution of the species, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and when creationists were confronted with the evidence from, you know, things like the redshift and astronomy and other geological data and that sort of thing, that the, that the world is millions of years old and the galaxy, the universe billions of years, their, their response to that was to say, well, God created the world 10,000 years ago with the appearance of age. So we grant the appearance, but it's just that, it's just an appearance. Yeah. And that, that position is utterly unfalsifiable, but it makes as much sense as saying that God created us all five minutes ago with memory implants. <laughs> you can't falsify it, but you certainly have no rational reason to believe it. Mm-hmm. And it utterly undermines your ability to do empirical science or to basically think rationally about anything at all. Right. So it's a very irrationalist position to take. And so I was I was educated to to be an irrationalist with respect to reality. And that would include the human person. That's why see psychologists got thrown into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought, well, they're just trying to solve problems without God. That's what we were told, right? So there's no psychological science. Um, then we were also told that our perspective on reality was infallibly true, that we had a lock on reality, and literally the rest of the world was wrong and going to hell in a handbasket. And we also had a kind of apocalyptic anxiety where the world was going to end at any moment. Jesus was going to come back on a cloud, and you could you could let Israel and the Palestinians go to hell. You could let the presidential election go to hell. You could you could sort of just throw it all away because, after all, you could let the, the, the ecology go to hell because Jesus is going to come back in five seconds and save us all. All you have to do is save souls. So the, so the attitude towards, say, public action, public involvement, social justice was, uh, well, yeah, that's important, but really Jesus is going to come back and save everybody. And saving souls meant proselytism. That is, get someone to verbally profess faith in Jesus, invite him into their heart, use any means necessary. Manipulation, coercion. Browbeating. Browbeating. All that. All that yeah. Maybe. Um, and, then, and that could lead to these kinds of outcomes. So I, there's a—I'm not going to name names, but there was a very, very prominent Christian apologist and, and minister who had a wide public influence, uh, not just in evangelicalism, but across American Christianity in the 1980s, who's dead now. But his son is a prominent person who's written memoirs about the family. Mm-hmm. We now know that that man viciously beat his wife. 
I mean, like beat the snot out of her. Wow. Right. To take, I mean, go into the hospital bad. And the wife was also a prominent person, intellectual and writer, who wrote books about how great her family life was. And the son confronted his mother one time and said, why are you saying this garbage? Like, that's not what our home looks like. She said, well, you know, we have to do it for the sake of the work. Because if we don't make people think this is so great, you know, then souls are going to be lost. Oh, man. So duplicity, deceit, and all of these things were fomented by a particular theological context. There were some specific theological conclusions drawn within my evangelical Christianity that led to the abuse of people. Now, did I just say that evangelicals all abuse people? I did not say that. What I said was, this is how I was raised, and with my own eyes, I saw abuses in my community, maybe not everywhere, that were sort of directly connected to the theological vision, okay? And, and in becoming Catholic, I, and, and, that, and that led me to have a kind of instrumentalist view of human persons, to try to proselytize and not really care about individuals as individuals, but just look at them as marks that I could put a feather in my cap if I got them to pray to receive Jesus. And it made me kind of a bad guy. And becoming Catholic, I got a long way to go, and I'm no saint, but helped me personally to develop a far more open-minded, tolerant, rational vision of the world that's, that's infinitely more docile to, to reality, to instruction, um, to, to the opinions of experts, to admitting that I don't know things about, that if I don't know about something, I don't know about it, not to claim that you know, my position is the right one because I claim to have found it on some fundamentalist reading of the Bible, a view of human mission, of Catholic mission, that's much more oriented towards the integral good of peoples, not just proselytizing them and trying to get them to pray my prayer, but you know, do they have enough food to eat? Do they have clothes to wear? Uh, are they psychologically sound? Are their families healthy? How are their kids doing? You know, all of that is the Catholic vision of evangelism, not just browbeating them with the catechism, sure. right? And um, uh, you know, of course, one friend of mine who who became Catholic uh, in part through my ministry, when I asked him what difference does it make in your life, his answer to me was, "Well, it's made a difference to my marriage because of the dignity with I with which I now regard my wife," right? So there are there are real world consequences to the theology. Yes. Now that doesn't mean that all Protestants are, you know, bigoted the way I was. It doesn't mean that all Protestants beat their wives the way that one prominent minister did. Right? It doesn't mean that. I didn't say that. And there are individual Protestants that are people of tremendous holiness, and graciousness and virtue. But there are some deficits that are internal to the system that lead to very specific abuses that I have witnessed and experienced, okay? F which for me, for me, Catholicism was the antidote to that. It made a tangible difference in my consciousness, the way I viewed reality, that has helped me to become a better person. And so, you know, to kind of reduce all that to one point, I use this illustration on the air all the time. If you catch a bacterial infection, you might get well without an antibiotic. Maybe. But it's a lot easier with the antibiotic. Definitely. Okay. And uh, you might get well by going to some quack doctor and being given snake oil. It won't be because of the snake oil, but you might get well anyway. Um, it, but you'd be better off with the, with the prescription medication, right? Yes. And the Catholic teaching about the nature of the human person, the nature of the moral process— um, the nature of sanctification and redemption 
the means of grace that are available to us, the Catholic position is that's the prescription antibiotic. Other people may get well as well, but it's harder because I have these deficits. Right? Now, while I'm giving this answer, I know somebody out there is thinking of this objection. Anders, you just said there were systematic problems in Protestantism that led to abuse. That is the pot calling the kettle black. That is the pot calling the kettle black. Because are you telling me that there are no systematic errors within Catholicism that lead to abuses? And I'd be a fool to deny it. Because we all know about the clerical abuse crisis, in which there were systematic problems oh, yeah. that led to abuses. Right? Um, and, uh, and at the level of church government governance, there are definitely have been institutions within Catholicism that have led to some pretty horrific outcomes. Okay. Um, and, uh, but I wasn't converted to those. I wasn't converted to those. I, I was fortunate in my own conversion that I had a good education in the Catholic faith, in patristics, in medieval theology, in spirituality, and I had enough distance, enough critical distance, that I could see what is the, 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 the benefit, the, the, the beneficial core in the church's spiritual doctrines, the essential teachings about the human person, about mm-hmm. morality, about ethics, and so forth, to recognize that the systematic errors in governance were accidental to the system, as it were, that they were in flat contradiction to those core principles. And so I became Catholic for those core principles. I became Catholic for the sacraments. I became Catholic for the example of the saints. I sure as heck did not become Catholic so I could go to Mass with abusive priests. Sure. Ashley, thanks so much for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. You know, every year, right around this time, we begin to air Lenten Reflections on EWTN radio and television. These are recorded at the Basilica of Our Lady in Walsingham in England, reflecting on the spiritual richness of the Lenten season. We're going to kick it off this weekend with uh, Father Robert Billing on this uh, first Sunday of Lent. He is the rector of the Basilica there in uh, Walsingham. He'll be sharing the theme of the first week of Lent, Baptism Brings Believers Immediately Into the Kingdom of God. Another way of saying that, Baptism Saves You Now. Do check it out. It's a wonderful program airing uh, Sunday, 6 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN. Let's go now to uh, Keith in Washington, D.C., listening on TuneIn. Hey there, Keith. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thanks for taking the call. Um, I've been reading Gregory of Nyssa's Mystical Theology, and I like his idea that the um, that the beatific vision is uh, continuous with our relationship with God on Earth, but that it is an ongoing, deepening relationship um, in the sense that it's with a because it's with a person, a divine person, and because it is uh, if we if we were to fully grasp God in the beatific vision, then then God wouldn't be God; he'd be comprehended, in other words. So. I wonder if you could talk about that. It seems a little bit different than the kind of uh, traditional understanding of the beatific vision that I've uh, under, you know, been taught. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I also like Nyssa's vision quite a lot, um, and uh, uh, the technical term for it is epictasis, and there's a, there's a line in St. Paul where he says, I, you know, I don't consider myself to have attained it, but, you know, I put things behind me and I strive, you know, onward and forward to, you know, to have greater things than Jesus. I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but it's this idea of, like, pushing further in and further in, and the Greek word there is epictasis, and so that's where the doctrine gets its name. 
and and I I fell in love with this vision of the afterlife uh, years ago before I knew it was called epictasis, before I knew there was a guy named Gregory of Nyssa, and before I knew there was a doctrine of the beatific vision. And I learned it, um, of all people, from C.S. Lewis in the children's novel The Last Battle. Uh, and if you've ever read the book, you know, there's a scene in the book where the heroes of the story are pushed with their backs up against a wall, up against a door. Uh, they're in the magical land of Narnia, and they get thrown through the door, they think, to their deaths. And when they land on the other side of the door, they look around and they're surprised to find that they're right back in Narnia again. But the colors are a little bit brighter. Mm. The fruit seems a little bit more refreshing. You know, the scents are a little bit more enticing. Everything just seems a bit more real. And as they start to walk, they find that that experience of things becoming more real, more solid, more good, more true, more beautiful, just seems to accelerate. And they're, they're, they're sort of converging on this uh, asymptotically, on this point at the middle of the map. And as they draw in, it seems like things get Keeping, get keep getting bigger. Like the more they get to the center, the more of it that there is. So it's bigger on the inside than mm, on the out. Wow. And and then uh, they start swimming upwards of waterfalls and this sort of thing. And and when they begin to catch on and they grow in strength and vigor and glory. And there's a there's a character in the story who is a, I can't remember if it's the unicorn or the or the winged horse. I think it's the unicorn that cries out further up and further in. Everyone goes chasing after him, yeah. and uh, and then he you know passes over her horizon into the story that never ends. That's you know that eye hasn't seen and ear hadn't heard and it hasn't entered into the heart of man. What in this case Aslan, but we know God has prepared for yes, those that love yes. him. And that that image of a kind of infinite asymptote into this accelerating experience of glory where where the, our grasp of reality just becomes realer and realer and realer, and we're just suffused with the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. I've always found that just tremendously enticing. Yes. So I have a great sympathy for Nyssa's vision. And the difference between that and the way St. Thomas would, would characterize the beatific vision is that Thomas's view is more static. It's more of a, of a, of a single permanent instant in which we have a perfect intuitive knowledge of the essence of the divinity. We see God in himself and know him as we're fully known. Um, both those guys are doctors of the church and celebrated Catholic theologians. So, you know, there yeah. you go. Draw your own conclusion there. Keith, thanks so much for your call. We couldn't get to Mike in Waco or James in Baton Rouge. If you uh, folks would please call us tomorrow, we'll put you at the head of the line. Also, that goes for the questions that came in today on YouTube. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Looking forward to our next visit tomorrow right here on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Until then, I'm Tom Price. Have a great day. God bless.